Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And it is December 6th, 2018. On this week's show, Sundance selects some features, Sundance selects some shorts, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. From Brooklyn, New York, once again, good morning to everyone, including you, too. It is officially cold out, I feel like. It was officially cold last week. don't bite my weather report, Eric (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to. Well, I was going to transition into it. That was my my (laughs) intro into it, because the wind chill is pretty bitter, I feel like. Liz, it looks like you have something you would like to say to the world. Yeah, forget the weather. I have an important message. Happy Hanukkah to those of you celebrating. We are in the middle of Hanukkah season, and the candles are alit. And uh, and so yeah. are the parties. Whoa. That's right. You know, what? You know? And I'm sure I would have gotten a Hanukkah card today, but there's no mail today. On what? Oh, yeah. You hear about that? Because of George H.W. Bush, and in memory of him, there's mail suspended for today. I think it's most federal institutions because yeah. I was um, shooting a video for – this guy who works at J.P. Morgan, and uh-huh. he his he's, his work was canceled because I think Wall Street is not on today either. Jesus. So I guess every member of Wall Street and every postal officer in the country are attending George H.W. Bush's funeral. funeral. Yeah. Um, or it could be in honor of Hanukkah. So whether you celebrate or not, it's the Festival of Lights, and we'd like to wish you all a light-filled year. And speaking of the new year coming up, holy cow, it's Sundance time again. I'm still catching up on 2018 Sundance yeah, titles, I feel like. I, just, I know, that's true. But now they're coming out in theaters, so now we actually can. True, true. You know, I just watched uh, Madeline's Madeline last night for the first time. Oh. Which I still haven't seen. That's one of the ones I'm planning on catching up on this month. I'm interested in, because I got Canopy. Oh, yeah. We so, talked about this last week, oh, and I got is it. That a, Wait, is that, I thought that was an oscilloscope, oscilloscope type. It's on Canopy. It's on there? Wow. How cool. There's a ton of great <gasps> stuff on Canopy. Got to be getting that Canopy uh, action. A lot of Criterion collection titles are on there, too, I found out. So major plug for Canopy right here. And it is true that you only get, nine, I think it's nine views a month, but that's nine movies. That's like, a lot. Yeah. You have, probably have four other streaming services, too. Let's not Let's not kid ourselves here. Did you like it? Um, I, I don't know. I'm not really yeah. sure how I felt about it, to be honest. Um, I, I think I went in with higher expectations because I've heard so many great things about it. Uh, and it was just a little hard for me. It's, it's an interesting movie. Um, it was a hard, hard for me to follow the, um, the narrative exactly or, or the tone of what was going on. But, uh, I, I, there were lots of things that I appreciated about it for sure. It was definitely an inventive film. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel fortunate that I got to see it back at Sundance before I had heard anything about it, because I think all the talk about it would have definitely colored my, my opinion on the right. piece. But I really admire Josephine Decker, the filmmaker. I think, like you said, she's very inventive. It's a story that we don't get to see very often, which I think is something that Sundance is really trying to uh, um, champion. To champion. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And it's shot by Ashley Connor. Who's our? Isn't she? We decided she's our number one most often appeared on the podcast guest, and 
we'll have to invite her this year because she shot yet another Sundance film. I'm sort of jumping the gun here, but she oh. shot yet another Sundance film by your good friend Daniel Shiner. Oh, she shot that, huh? Yeah. I saw I that that gonna was going to awesome. be on there. So. Yeah, the Daniels. We're fans here at No Film School. So that's a great segue into the fact that my new boss, Robert Redford, called me personally last week to let me know that the selections had been made for Sundance 2019. And you kept it a secret the entire time from us. <laughs> but now it'll tell the world. All right, that's not exactly how it happened, but I did get to listen in on uh, a three-hour presentation where the programmers from each section of the festival went over the entire program, which was really a pretty cool experience, I have to say. Um, and... It, like this program is truly exciting this year. Like we've covered a lot of film festivals over the years, um, and I have to say that I can't remember one where there were so many films I wanted to see. It really looks awesome. So for some specifics, almost everything's been announced at this point, including Episodic and New Frontier. But I will focus on films today. By the numbers, a record high of fourteen thousand two hundred fifty-nine submissions were received, including over four thousand feature-length films. Of those features, 112 were selected, representing 33 countries and 45 first-time filmmakers. So as we've noted on the show in the past, they really do a good job. Almost half of the features selected are first-time filmmakers, which is you know promising for, for a lot of our listeners. Um, any filmmaker who applied, therefore, had a 3% chance of getting their feature in. So big, big congrats to those who made the cut. 40% of the selections were directed by one or more women, 36 were directed by one or more filmmaker of color, and 15 by one or more people who identify as LGBTQIA, et cetera, et cetera. LGBTQIA plus? Yeah, plus sized LGBTQ I like et cetera, people. I like et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it really rolls off the tongue. Um, <laughs> So, your chances of getting a short in the festival were even slimmer, by the way. Only 73 shorts were chosen from among 9,443 submissions. If I could do the whistle. Can someone do it? Uh, Hey, there you go, John Fusco. just into the mic. (laughs) Um, Yeah, interestingly, those submissions came in almost exactly half from the U.S. and half from abroad. And by the way, I heard it straight from a programmer's mouth. They apparently really do watch each and every one of those short films. And then they rank them by the 9,200 and whatever. (laughs) Yes. I believe John's was 73. Yeah. Unfortunately, mine didn't make the cut. But you know what I did read, too, was that I think the majority of the directors that were chosen for the shorts program were female. They had more than 50% uh, female directors this year. That's right. Ladies oh. in the house. I was going to mention it. I'm glad you jumped oh, okay. in there. So John's title alone almost puts you at a disadvantage. Yeah, that's I very mean, true. <laughs> you, got it. you just could have called it the woman, <laughs> and you know you may have had a better shot. That's right. Why wasn't it the chick? Mm. Oh. That's the that's the sequel. Well, it's actually it, there is a chick in it, and uh, it could be it could be viewed from her perspective too, if you want it to. But we're we're jumping the gun there. Uh, but I, I think I will say really quickly, like I've been sort of overwhelmed by the amount of support that people have like given me on mm. Twitter, uh, like the past few days. All, all my fellow uh, rejectees were really. Awesome. I, I don't really know how to say this. <laughs> yeah, but, like, listen, we're, I, we're a community at No Film School, and I, it's nice that you guys come through, you know, for us. Yeah. John spends all day long uh, trying to support, you know, you, and as we all do, and it's so nice that you come back in kind. Yeah, I didn't expect uh, this, so thanks, guys. That was really nice of you, and uh, yeah, we'll keep fighting the fight. 
Aw. Um, a couple more things about this year's fest. In terms of trends in the program, there's the normal Sundance stuff that we've noticed in years past, like hot political topics and actors turned director. Notable this year is Chiwetel Ejiofor's directorial debut, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. You might recognize his name because he won an Oscar for his role in 12 Years a Slave a few years ago. Uh, another trend I noticed, and I actually think it's reflected industry-wide, is filmmakers crossing genres or people who we know in one role sort of playing in a different sandbox. For example, my girl Alma Harrell, who we know as an edgy documentarian, is making her narrative feature debut with Honey Boy, written by Shia LaBeouf, who of course we know as an actor. And Oscar-winning documentarian Joe Berlinger, who we've actually had on the podcast, also has a narrative feature in the fest that looks really interesting. It's called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, the John Fusco story. I wonder about his take on the character with that title. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the thing is, the thing about this movie is it stars Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, which like sounds insane, but then the more I thought, the more like I heard about it. So it's from the perspective of Ted Bundy's girlfriend, who of course thinks her her boyfriend is like this charming, handsome, charismatic guy. And so it's kind of an it's an interesting casting yeah. choice. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Next year, Justin Bieber as Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> That'd be a good one. It's all you, Eric. Um, in other crossovers, the extremely talented DP, Bradford Young, co-directed a short called As Told to God Thyself, and the list goes on. Yeah, and that's uh, with Kamazi Washington, I think, is the other half of that. And Terrence Nant. Terrence Nant, who we've yeah, covered yeah. on the site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Great cool. team. Yeah. Um, and one more note that I know will excite some of you, particularly in this booth, the art house horror trend continues. This year, there's a Bloomhouse picture premiering, and it's not even in the midnight section. Uh, it's called Relive by director Jacob Estes, and it's about a guy who gets a phone call from his dead niece after his family was killed in a gruesome murder. So they're still having the midnight section, but even some of the sort of midnight-like films have sort of um, transitioned into the more mainstream uh, segments. And on another note, Sundance seems to be one of the festivals actually putting its money where its mouth is as far as gender parity. Uh, Liz had mentioned that the majority of shorts were made by women, and it's also worth noting that 53% of the directors in this year's U.S. dramatic competition are women. And by the way, it's not just the film sections that are more gender-inclusive this year. The festival's new press inclusion initiative was announced uh, earlier in 2018, is allocating a minimum of 20% of top-tier press credentials for its festival to critics from underrepresented communities, including women, people of color, LGBTQIA, Etc. Etc. Yeah, etc. Et cetera, et cetera. And people with disabilities. And now Rotten Tomatoes has joined in on the fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like, we need to get in on this. Uh, they're contributing twenty five thousand dollars to a one hundred thousand dollar fund that will support travel and lodging for some of these journalists. So we couldn't find a specific way to apply for these funds, but if you're interested, you can email press coverage at sundance.org with specific questions. And so. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a pretty cool opportunity. And Rotten Tomatoes being probably the biggest critical website uh, out there, it's good to see them getting on board with Sundance. And finally, in uh, the Sundance news, a word to those of you who didn't get in, including our good friend John Fusco. Just keep saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep bringing it. No, in. But- it's not a rejectee. It's a non-accept. Yeah, that's yeah. that's nice. You know, it well, sounds nicer. That's I guess. Yeah, it's sure. the same thing, but it, it sounds sweeter. Double speak. That's yeah. You know, it's the hot trend right now. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Either way, the point is obviously we feel you. You know, from this year and other years, we've all applied to Sundance festivals or labs or grants, and been rejected. 
Um, but just know that this is not the end for your film. It is really, really only the beginning. There are audiences out there who want and need to see your work, and that work will find them, whether through another festival that might be a better fit for you, or through online distribution, or through the zillion other ways there are to get films out there today. So keep your chins up. We are rooting for you. Anyways, moving on to our next little bit of news. We got more movies based on serial killers to discuss here, and I'm talking about Lars Van Trier's new movie, The House That Jack Built. Uh, So it looks like IFC is facing sanctions from the Motion Picture Association of America over the release of their controversial serial killer movie, The House That Jack Built. They opened an unrated director's cut of the film for one night only on November 28th in over 100 cities across the U.S., but the MPAA says IFC did so without getting the appropriate waiver. I wish I could have gone to one of these screenings. Yeah, I think Matt Dillon was at a bunch of them in New York, so they were all sold out pretty quickly. Yeah, they sold out quick. Yeah. So the issue appears to be with the fact that IFC decided to release the unrated version so close to the edited theatrical cut, which opens in theaters and on demand December 14th, next week. Per MPAA rules, IFC now has 10 business days to set a hearing with the organization to explain itself to the Classification and Ratings Administration, which administers film ratings on behalf of the MPAA and National Association of Theater Owners. IFC is now facing a sanction where it could be suspended from participating in the rating system for up to 90 days. The R rating given to the theatrical cut of House That Jack Built could also be revoked. Von Trier premiered the film out of competition at Cannes earlier this year, and it instantly courted controversy for several scenes of graphic violence against women, children, and animals. The film chronicles the most important murders and the rise of serial killer Jack... I think it's Jack. Jack? Jack, what's his last name? Uh, does he have a last name? I don't is know. Is it we'll based him. on a true story? Yeah. No? No, no it is. Oh, I thought I, so. I thought it was. Oh, I don't think so. Maybe not. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it chronicles the most important murders and the rise of a serial killer played by Matt Dillon. I'm really excited to see it, and I hope that this mess gets cleared up soon so we don't have any sort of delay on when I can see this in theaters. I wonder if this is really like a power struggle where the MPAA feels that Either IFC is just by releasing it so close to the release date that that is showing them that we don't need you guys, or are they really concerned that par- parents are, are seeing the marketing and will be confused with an unrated cut versus an R-rated cut? Or I, I wonder for one night only too. I don't know. It's it's very strange, um, and it's a little. I don't know. It's a, whenever I read about this stuff, it's always a little concerning. Just the amount of censorship that like the MPAA can uh, invoke on directors yeah. and distributors but because you are allowed to release your film unrated but it then limits the amount of theaters that's going right. to take you so right. i guess this is their way of having their cake and eating it too maybe and now we're going to move on to gear news with charles hayne hey everybody this is charles hayne here with tech news uh first up we ran a full in-depth hands-on review with the black magic pocket 4k uh for those of you who don't remember this is a 4k raw camera for 12.95 like $1,295 that does 4K raw at that price point. We first saw this way back before NAB. We did a pre-interview the day before NAB uh, with the CEO of Blackmagic, Grant Petty. He brought it out. It is obviously a very impressive bit of engineering. Like, aside from the price point, to be this physically small and to be able to do 4K raw is really impressive. To be able to do it and then charge $1,300 for it is, like, particularly impressive Overall, we walked away really excited about the camera. There's a lot of really amazing stuff about it. The freedom Blackmagic gives themselves is the freedom to do everything from scratch. So it is 
all sorts of the things that you always wish they would put in a camera because Blackmagic doesn't have to keep any of their old clients happy. They don't really have camera clients from five, ten years ago. So they can just design it exactly as they want so they can use all of the bigger connectors. There's like a real power port. There is a USB-C port that you can plug a thumb drive into and just shoot straight to the thumb drive. Or you can buy one of those super cheap Samsung T5 SSDs that we use all the time and plug that straight into the camera and shoot directly to that. So there's all sorts of little things that it can do that other cameras can't do, which is a result of, like, giving themselves a lot of freedom in operating, uh, in design. They also have a huge touchscreen, which is really nice, and it makes the menus very intuitive. There's, like, little stuff that's a little weird. Like, for instance, I don't really care where the power switch is on a big camera because on a big camera it's on a tripod and I'm switching out block batteries and it's not a big deal. But on a little run-and-gun camera, I'm turning the camera on and off all the time, like my daily use camera, my Fuji X-H1, I can like, without even thinking, turn it on and off. And the boot up time on this camera is pretty good, but weirdly the power switch is just like a little further than I want it to be from my finger for turning on and off. Little stuff like that. Also, I don't think it should be called the Pocket. The Pocket is a legacy name, like they used to make an even smaller camera called the Pocket, which would legit fit in your pocket, and this one doesn't quite fit in your pocket. Its biggest drawback like, I can ignore the power switch thing. The biggest decision maker for me on this is the lack of built-in image stabilization. That would not have mattered 10 years ago because it just wasn't a thing we all depended upon 10 years ago. But now, between, like, the GHs from Panasonic and the Fuji XH and all sorts of other great options, I think we're all kind of addicted to image stabilization. And its lack is pretty noticeable. Um also, right now, it doesn't have Blackmagic RAW. It just shoots to Cinema G&G RAW, which, whoa, big files. Blackmagic RAW, when it comes to this camera, which we hear reports it'll be soon, will be a major improvement over Cinema D&G RAW, which the files are just too big to be reliably usable. It's a very exciting camera paired with, like, a Ronin-S to give it that stabilization. And, like, a Ronin-S is 700 bucks, so that's, what, $2,000 for a fully stabilized 4K raw camera. I mean, that's astounding. Um, we think it's a really great combo. We actually think image stabilization matters more in a little camera than it does in a big camera. A big camera, you're always on a tripod or you're on a shoulder or there's like inertia. So it doesn't matter as much. It's the little cameras where you really need it. And it's sort of noticeably lacking here. It's going to be the right camera for a lot of people, for a lot of situations. If you're always going to be on tripod or dolly, if you're always going to be on stabilizer, I it's a really dynamite option. Um, but we think that there are still some compelling reasons to look at like the GH4 and the uh, X-H1. You might want to keep Sony in mind just for their killer uh, autofocus. Again, it's always the right tool for the job, but we think the pocket's going to be the right tool for a lot of jobs. Up next, Red has released a brand new sort of camera. For around the $15,000 price point, they're releasing the Dragon X sensor, which is kind of an older sensor for RED, but in a DSMC2 super modern body. And it's kind of an interesting move for RED. It's a move I really like. It's a move I super respect. Basically what they're doing, usually RED is all about like the new sensor, getting the brand newest sensor, and the newest sensor with RED at the like full frame is Monstro, or at Super 35 is Helium. 
There's also the Gemini, which does dual ISO. So there are all these new sensors from RED. So for them to be doing a new body around the Dragon is sort of an interesting move. But I think it's really smart for a couple of reasons. First off, you can get phenomenal images out of the Dragon sensor. Um, even the sensor before that, the Mysterium X, although the Dragon is really, I wouldn't go buy a Mysterium X camera right now. But like RED has been delivering some really nice images for a while. The Dragon sensor is a great sensor. Uh, so that is certainly part of it, but it's really interesting because it's an acknowledgement from Red. I think that there is a market for them at the at that price point that they weren't hitting with their other three sensors, all of which were a little pricier. And it's a way of unifying their line around like all four of those sensors are now available in the same DSMC2 body. And what's also really nice about it is it has the updated hardware so that you can run. IPP2, their new image, or not too new, it's a year old, but their image processing pipeline that really does offer some imaging improvements and some workflow improvements. And previously, you couldn't run with Dragon cameras. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think with any camera that had a Dragon sensor in it, you could run IPP2 in the firmware because the hardware wasn't capable of it. So this is kind of a nice refresh from RED. It's interesting. RED isn't someone who's famous for, like, keeping the legacy stuff around, but I think it is smart of them to be like, hey, the Dragon sensor is still a really good one. Maybe we can build it into the latest and greatest of the rest of the camera body. I think this is going to be really popular in a couple places. One of them is going to be film schools. If you're a film school and you're deciding between a $60,000 or whatever it currently is, Monstro, Full Frame 8K, or the Dragon X for 15000 I think students will still learn everything they need to learn about IPP2, which is good stuff for students to be learning and processing it in post and seeing how it works in Resolve. And they're still going to learn everything about the DSMC2 body and how to work with that. So if they book a job right after school where they're out on a Monstro, they'll know everything they need to know. And you can still learn all that without needing to be on the absolute latest and greatest amazing sensor. So I think it's going to be really popular there. I think it's also going to be really popular with Indies. And I think you're going to maybe be able to get like a more affordable rental package out of it, especially since Super 35 sensor. So you're not going to need to obsessively focus on getting that full frame glass. Last up in tech news, it's a bit of a weird one, but there was like a viral Tom Cruise video that went around this week. And I think everybody should watch it. Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie, the director of Mission Impossible 6 Fallout, uh, did a PSA about turning off motion smoothing the so-called soap opera effect on your monitor. And, like, maybe it's just film nerd Twitter, but, like, it was popping up on my Twitter and my Facebook and it was everywhere, and I'm glad to see it, and I just wanted to point more people towards it. You can turn off that weird setting in your TV that makes your TV look terrible. It's so frustrating to me. My best guess is that people love it for sports, and more TVs, frankly, are probably bought for watching sports than watching movies. As weird as that sounds, it's probably true. So I think that's why manufacturers keep it on. But it, it's such a nice reminder that you can turn it off. I hope that it spreads really wildly to, to remind a bunch of people how easy it is to turn off. I wish it were easier. I wish they would all use the same name. The problem is every company uses a different name for it. Um, but you can turn it off. You don't have to look like a soap opera when you're watching a beautiful movie, um, whatever that movie might be. So this is Charles. I am back with Ask No Film School. A. Wills asks a lot of questions about working with his stabilizer. There was like a whole long thing. It was great. But there's one we really wanted to talk about on the show this week. And that was, do I even need a follow focus if my lens's camera are capable of autofocus? 
So this is a great question because this answer actually has changed, right? 15 years ago, the answer was always, of course you need follow focus. Autofocus is terrible. And if you like look at student films or home videos from 15 years ago, autofocus is awful. It's like slow and laggy and it's catching up. And then it does this thing where it's like checking itself. Like you're watching a close-up of something and it's like in focus. And you're like, yeah, autofocus. And then autofocus like throws itself out and back in to be sure that it's sharp, like right in the middle of like when the actor starts crying. Autofocus used to be awful. But in the last five years or so, autofocus has gotten really good. I mean, there's an article somewhere on the site. We went out and we tested the um, Sony at a press event at a soccer arena and we shot with the A9. And like the autofocus in the A9 feels like magic. I mean, it's a very expensive camera, but we were standing on the sidelines of the game playing with one of the cameras and like it was dusk into night. So it was like not super low light, but low light-ish. And we were on a long lens and we were like, Shooting video, panning back and forth to like right in front of us, to the other side of the soccer pitch, back to right in front of us. And it was just always in focus. It was mysterious and amazing. So do you always need like an external follow focus? I still say yeah. And here's the reason why. Because I think that focus isn't just about things being sharp. It's about filmmakers making decisions about where to point the eye. And yes, touchscreen autofocus where you can like touch one actor and then it racks over to them and then touch the other actor on the monitor racks over them is like a thing. But I've never seen the touchscreen autofocus deliver exactly what I want out of it. Um, there's always sort of a search or a hunt or the touchscreen's too small or anything like that. I think eventually, especially in something like hinting back to tech news, the Blackmagic Pocket, which has that huge touchscreen. We might see something like that. But for right now, as a filmmaker, focus is about decisions. Focus isn't just about like, oh, I always want the soccer ball in focus. You're going to do these like two-person scenes where they're talking to each other, where you want to rack back and forth. And maybe you're not on the person talking. Maybe you're on the person listening because they're responding in such an evocative way that you want to capture that. And that's one of those things you get to make a decision about as a filmmaker that the automatic autofocus isn't going to be able to do for you. So for me, whenever I have the option, I'm hooking up some sort of method for uh, controlling focus myself. One of the nice things we liked about the Ronin S when we played with it was that it had that focus knob built in with your thumb. It's a little hard to see unless you're working with some sort of external monitor, like if you just have the GH5 on there or uh, it's going to be too small. Ooh, I wonder if it'd be big enough on the pocket to see what was going on. But... It's something that I like having that control because filmmaking is about choices. All right. Talk to everybody next week. And now we're going to move on to some movies opening this week. The Rainbow Experiment has a release date of December 7th on VOD. Christina Collis's sophomore feature tells the story of a high school where things spiral out of control when a terrible accident involving a science experiment injures a kid for life. As our contributor Max Winter describes the film, which premiered at Slamdance earlier this year, it begins with an explosion and stays explosive. Kind of like my bowel movements. Pretty good. That's pretty good. Wow. Uh, oh, at that part I'm not condoning. <laughs> <laughs> no Film School caught up with Collis to talk about her film, how she made it, why she made it, how it evolved, and much more. You can read that interview on the site. And coming out on December 7th is Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, and that will be on Netflix. 
Andy Serkis's version of The Jungle Book was announced around the same time as Disney and John Favreau's version, but from the get-go, we could tell that they were going to be very different stories. Serkis's vision is much darker and closer to Rudyard Kipling's source material than the Disney-fied version. It tells the story of a human child raised by wolves who must face off against a menacing tiger named Shere Khan, as well as his own origins. Like the Disney version, it's got an incredible cast, including Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Benedict Cumberbatch, and of course, no motion capture film would be complete without Circus himself. Who do you think Benedict Cumberbatch is playing? Because I think this is like one of the greatest voice castings of all time. He's got to be uh, the snake. I was going to say the same. No yeah. way. He's, he's the tiger. Shere um, Khan. Yeah. Is Kate Blanchett the snake? I know it was Scarlet. No, Kate oh. Blanchett, I think, is playing some character that isn't in the Disney version, and I haven't read the Rudyard Kipling book. So I think she plays a wolf, like one of the wolves that raises him. Um, anyways, this film is rounding out what has been a really amazing year for Netflix exclusive releases, and hopefully we'll be interviewing Circus sometime next week for a podcast episode, which would be a dream come true. I'm still waiting to get confirmation back on that, but uh, maybe Gollum will be on the show well, in a few weeks. That would be so cool, my precious. He has to do it in his motion capture suit. By the way, speaking <laughs> of these, can I just say, I, I could see also Christian Bale being the tiger. That's why... That's why I went <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch for the snake. Like, Christian Bale's kind of nasty. I think Christian, Christian Bale... <laughs> That's our quote. Christian Bale is playing the panther, I think. He's playing Bagheera, and Andy Serkis is playing um, Baloo, the bear. Aww. And opening in theaters on Friday is Clara's Ghost. Uh, I thought that not since Francis Ford Coppola has the filmmaker cast as many members of their own family as Bridie Elliott does here. It has uh, She's the daughter of Chris Elliott, who you may remember from Saturday Night Live, uh, the sister of Abby Elliott, who was also on Saturday Night Live for a year, and their mom is also in this as, as well. And I think there may even be a grandma at, at one point, but who knows? Uh, with Clara's Ghost, Elliot, who's an accomplished comedic performer herself, shows a strong hand for balancing the absurd with the horrific. It's a comedy that's a ghost story as well, but it's definitely more on the comedy side. And it's set in Elliot's hometown of Old Lyme, Connecticut, and in her parents' actual 19th century home. So this is really a family affair. And their family is gathered together in the film for their celebrity dad's important photo shoot, etc. And as the family grows more inebriated, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of alcohol in there. Clara, who's a soft-spoken mother with signs of alcoholism, continues to see the ghost of a woman who may or may not have formerly occupied the household. Uh, I spoke with Elliot and the producer, Sarah Winshaw, who's been on the podcast, about their creative partnership, the advantages and unexpected surprises that come from shooting in Elliot's former home, and balancing comedy with genre formal and we will link to that on the site. Also out now is Meow Wolf, the origin story. And this documentary details the history of a group of artists in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who become a DIY collective called Meow Wolf. Their immersive, large-scale exhibitions cracked open a profitable niche in the arts industry, and with the support of George R.R. R. Martin, they built a massive exhibition called House of Eternal Return, with over 140 artists working at a breakneck pace. The film premiered at South by Southwest this year, and our contributor Oakley Anderson Moore sat down with co-directors Morgan Capps and Jillian Spitzmiller, who also happens to be film directors in the developing entertainment wing of Meow Wolf for a podcast. They talked how to choose subjects for the film from the radically inclusive collective and how to achieve visual aesthetics that mirror their subjects. We'll link to the podcast episode in the post associated with this podcast. And now for some upcoming grant and opportunity deadlines for y'all. 
On December 10th is the deadline for the Intercept Screening Room and Double Exposure Short Investigative Film Grant. It's a brand new grant. If you've got an idea for a short investigative film but could use some resources to make it a reality, this one is for you. The winning entry will not only get a $5,000 grant, but also access to a Canon C300 for the shoot, if in the U.S., mentorship throughout the project, and the potential to screen the finished short docked on The Intercept and at the 2019 Double Exposure Fest. Any filmmaker or video journalist is welcome to apply, and there's no fee for submission, but you will need a screening room basic premium or pro account. And representatives from each of these organizations will review the submissions and make a final decision in February. So it's a short timeline. And the screening room folks are, are filmmakers as well. So we, uh, we definitely stand by this one. It's a, they're good people. The deadline of this Friday is the CAM Documentary Fund. And this is the late deadline. CAM, which stands for the Center for Asian American Media, will award between $15,000 and $50,000 for public television appropriate programs. With support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, CAM provides production funding to independent producers for national public television. Documentaries are eligible for production or post-production funding and must be intended for public television broadcast. And now moving on to some festival deadlines. The American Documentary Film Festival and Film Fund, otherwise known as Amdocs, has a deadline on December 15th. This takes place in Palm Springs, California from March 29th to April 4th, 2019, and this is the late deadline. It's an Academy Award qualifying for documentary shorts, and in conjunction with the festival is the American Documentary Film Fund, as I mentioned, where U.S. filmmakers compete for startup or finishing funds in order to complete their film masterpieces. For the Film Fund, competing filmmakers can win up to $50,000. And on January 4th, we're skipping ahead because it's the end of the year and there's uh, kind of a lack of deadlines at the end of December. Um, But this is one to pay attention to. Vienna Shorts uh, has a deadline on January 4th. This festival takes place May 28th to June 2nd, 2019 in Vienna, Austria, which is a incredible city. Beautiful city. And great film scene, actually. I remember I when I was in college, I had like a week to travel around when I was studying abroad, and I went to uh, Vienna for like a few days, and I snuck into some film festival that was going on there with some friends that I met in Maybe Vienna. Maybe it was Vienna Shorts. I don't. I'm not. I don't think it was. I think it was the some Vienna International Film Festival, um, but it was a lot of fun and. Uh, the city's great, so I'm going to be applying to as many festivals in Vienna as I can <laughs> for an excuse to go back there. VIS Vienna Shorts is an international short film festival organized by the Association Independent Cinema in Vienna. The festival presents about 300 films under 30 minutes in several sections every year, and its competition is divided into four categories. VIS is a qualifying festival for the Academy Awards, the European Film Awards, and the Austrian Film Awards, and awards prize money in the amount of more than 20,000 euros. Uh, But hey, that's subject to change. And while we're talking about short films, the Indie Shorts International Film Festival has a deadline of January 6th. This one takes place from July 25th to the 28th, 2019 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, It's sort of a sub-festival of the Heartland International Film Festival. And as such, all winners will play encore screenings at the Heartland International Film Festival the following October. So you get, you know, double... Double pack your punch. <laughs> Double. <laughs> you get two laurels instead of one. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> um, an Academy Award qualifying film festival in both the live action and documentary short film categories. The second annual Indie Shorts event will bestow $30,000 in cash prizes across multiple categories, including narrative short, doc short, and animated short. 
each winning a hefty $5,000 cash prize. And now, Liz, I don't know if you have a watch on you, but do you know what time it is? Oh, I think it's time to bust a rhyme. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> this has happened in the past, right, where we start freestyling just unexpectedly? It's time for you to drop some weekly words of wisdom. All right. So this week, we actually mentioned uh, this gentleman, Maxim Postrovkin. 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 Maxim Postrovkin. Uh, we mentioned him last week for the, his film The Truth About Killer Robots, which premiered on HBO and is now streaming. Our own Emily Booter sat down with Maxim uh, and asked about his fascination with automation and robots in general. And he had a unique and somewhat foreboding response that sounded like a good thing for all filmmakers looking to ace their next sci-fi script should listen to. Quote, Almost everything that I saw and read about AI and robots had a lot of interesting points, but was unsatisfying. I realized that the big blind spot was that almost all of it was premised on this marketing idea of what robots can do for us. I realized that what I was interested in is what robots could do to us, the way they transform us. hey <laughs> I didn't think of it like that, but that's, that's a good point. Uh, every single time there's some kind of accident with AI, we talk about this thing in the future that might harm us. We're not thinking about the way that the processes that underlie it are harming us already and broadly transforming society. I thought there was this way of making a film that looks at automation as a cause of death, a kind of metaphorical death and the dehumanizing process. I wanted to think about AI not as this distant thing, but as a continuation of the automation process that we've been on for a long time, to see it as a historical continuum. Um, and I, I just thought of ways that sometimes we're in, in films we see very kind of scary robots that are out to kill us. And this is the case of the film is based on a automobile uh, employee who in a factory was pinned up against the wall due to a robot gone wrong and killed by like this robot arm that helps work in the factory. And just seeing the dangers that come with that. And it just shows that we can still make films about killer robots and not necessarily have it be so cut and dry with, you know, like, I love Blade Runner, but thinking of robots turning against us, like replicants turning against us after being created for man's uh, approval and usage. So it just showed a different perspective to approach that sci-fi uh, form from, and in this case, in a documentary. Yeah, I mentioned when when I um, talked about the film's release last week that he approaches his work from this sort of like very intellectual, academic place, and your your quote kind of feeds right into that. Totally, yeah. But it's like I don't I don't really see how it's a new perspective because I feel like this idea about what robots can do to harm us and turn against us is like a long time. The Terminator and all yeah, these type I guess of movies. Those kind of things, though, I feel like are built as killing machines in a sense, or they are meant as some kind of security oh. thing, whereas this almost seems like this is what happens when it could go wrong. I know that sounds kind of vague, but in terms of the the example that he used with the automobile factory, uh, I think it kind of showed the dangers of having, you know, robots for, I don't know, I was going to say mechanical consumption, but I guess the mechanical reproduction. Uh. Uh, also a terrible term. <laughs> when but, uh, I woke hey. up this morning, I did not expect that we'd be talking about killer sex robots on the wow. podcast. But hey, And you could use them for that reason as well. That's also uh, something that... You also did bust what a, a rhyme. Ha- like maybe halfway through that, I realized. I can't remember the exact phrase now. It's like automation domination or something. Automation replication. Ooh. Automation replication. Ooh. Yeah, that was nice. I didn't do it on purpose. That's gonna be your new rap name, Eric the Automator. <laughs> Eric, you gotta take those. Eric the you Sex take Robot. Those. 
Okay. Sorry. Anyway, folks. Um, so shout out to sex robots. Speaking of Wait. hardcore. <laughs> That's right. Um, huh. So shout outs. Um, the godfathers of hardcore, but not hardcore sex. Hardcore music has its premiere on Showtime on December 12th. And uh, we had director Ian McFarland on the podcast last year during Doc NYC on an episode called How Do You Know If One Character Can Carry Your Whole Movie? Um, Ian was such a great interview and has become a friend. And I just I really like this guy. I think he puts a lot of heart into his movies. And I hope that you'll be able to check out this film on Showtime. It's sort of a personal look at this um, famous New York hardcore band called Agnostic Front and uh it's worth looking at if you're interested in any type of music documentary and sort of like the soul behind behind the music. Cool. One more shout out before you tell us what next uh, week's podcast, Talk and Wussy podcast is going to be. Uh, I believe that Roma is playing in theaters for like the next maybe week and a half before its Ooh. release on Netflix. And I highly recommend you seek that out and see that in theaters because I was trying to figure out when it was going to be in theaters. I haven't seen much about it's it. It's playing at IFC right now um, oh in New York City and a few other locations in New York. Um, it's been there for a week, I think. Okay. Um, but I think that its run closes next week. So if you can look for it, it's uh, really stunningly shot by Alfonso Cuarón, who won a cinematography award yeah, last New- week. New York Film Critics Circle, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Big, so it's a it's a big one. It's it's truly like an amazing film. So, well, if you're in New York and you want to go and you haven't seen it, hit me up. I would like to go with you. Wow. Okay. That's that's a. You don't know who's going to respond to you. I was only referring to you as sex robots. If you're a sex, oh, robot, sex robots and you uh, want to see Roma with me next week, would, I'm it, at Liz Film on Twitter. I hope since the truth about killer robots is an HBO show that they had a sex. Uh, what did we talk about last week? The sex coordinator. Oh, yeah. Intimacy coordinator. Intimacy coordinator. I hope they had an intimacy coordinator on set for this documentary, since it was an HBO production. You know what? I want to go see it with Maxim Pozdrovkin. Max, if you're listening, please come see Roma with me in New York City. And in the meantime, next Monday's podcast, um, I don't know how many of you have used a 16-millimeter Bolex film camera. Have you guys... No. no, I've seen them. I've observed that being used. Yeah, they're no. well. I was sort of going to say, even if you haven't, I actually did in my very first film class at the Film Arts uh, Foundation in San Francisco. But it was like anyway, 1974, 19. 19- That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's from my pre-birth class. Um, but yeah, you've de- as Eric pointed out, you've definitely seen one. It's that iconic handheld camera that's sort of visually synonymous with the truly avant-garde filmmaking, um, and it was invented by a guy called Jacques Balzay unbeknownst to his great-granddaughter, Alyssa Bolzay. By complete coincidence or cosmic connection, Alyssa was in film school herself when she discovered this piece of her family's history. So, of course, she had to make a film about it. Um, And she spent the next decade-plus researching her somewhat mysterious great-grandpa and interviewing tons of influential filmmakers who used his cameras, like Barbara Hammer and Vim Vendors. And the film she made with her discoveries is called Beyond the Bolex. I interviewed her and producer DP Camilo Lara Jr. at Doc NYC for next Monday's episode, and it's one you camera nerds will go crazy for. I don't. That's crazy. I'm gonna have to listen to this. That that just sounds too coincidental to Imagine. me. It seems unbelievable, but there's all these reasons why it's the case. Like basically, he was sort of estranged from his grandson. They didn't really have any kind of relationship and then he also had like different last names over the years because he had to immigrate to different countries because he was like a Jewish refugee so all this history was kind of lost and then 
found by his great-granddaughter who just happened to be a filmmaker. It, it's one of those, yeah, it doesn't seem possible, well, but it's a stranger than fiction imagine. doc. It's like Dana Spielberg went to film school one day and realized, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. Yeah, I mean, seriously, it's, it's kind of like that. It's funny. So, yeah, stay tuned for that next week. That's it for today's show. As always, you can read about everything you heard on the podcast and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow No Film School at No Film School. And if you like the show, rate us, review us on iTunes, subscribe, as always. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I'm at Eric Lures. You can follow me at Eric Lures. That's Eric with a K. Eric with a K. Eric with a K. K. Come see Roma with me. Just tweet at me. I'll I'll even buy the tickets. Come with both of us. Jeez, you got to steal my dates. Okay, we'll go together. If you'd like to go with either of us, especially me, and you're a sex robot, <laughs> you still have to pay to get the sex robot in there. It is IFC after all. I will buy your ticket. And uh, my Twitter handle is at LizFilm. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>